Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Eli Dorado. He's a senior research fellow at Utah State University Center for Growth and Opportunity. Before joining Utah State, Eli worked to advance supersonic flight at Boom. He directed technology policy at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and he earned a PhD in economics from George Mason, studying under Tyler Cowen. In a feature for City Journal's spring issue called The New Productivity Revolution, he discusses a number of new technologies that will have tremendous benefits for human flourishing, if we can get out of our own way. Eli, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. It's great to be on with you. Um, as, as you note in this essay, which is in our, our spring issue, um, economic productivity has stalled in recent years, and a number of explana- explanations for this uh, secular stagnation, as it's called, uh, have been put forward. Uh, the most famous one probably is the one advanced by economist Robert Gordon, who argues that we've basically picked all the low-hanging fruit. We've invented uh, all of the major technologies, and so that what we're seeing these days is just diminishing returns from the digital revolution, and you know marginal improvements to digital technology aren't comparable to something like the internal combustion engine. So you disagree with this argument respectfully in the essay and identify a number of key technologies that you believe are on the cusp of being the next big, huge, great inventions, transformative inventions. So maybe we could just start there to uh, detail um, what, you know, these these big uh, looming inventions are. Sure. Yeah. Happy to, happy to do that. Um, so I, as you note, I, I sort of outlined three uh, areas that I think are, are really promising. And one is, um, the first one is, is in, in biotech and especially around sort of the idea of like mastering uh, protein biology. So understanding how proteins work. Um, and there's been a number of developments that are all coming together at the same time to uh, sort of you know, rapidly increase our, our capabilities uh, in being able to uh, manipulate and, and ultimately even design proteins. Um, and so, you know, one that everyone, of course, is familiar with is the mRNA vaccines that have just come out that uh, sort of enable us to, pro- you know, sort of produce within human cells uh, any arbitrary protein that we want. We've, we've sort of taken over the machinery of the ribosome and we can, we can basically tell a human cell to pump out any protein that we want. And in this case, we used it to pump out the, um, the coronavirus spike protein. Uh, which is defined, you know, defined in the coronavirus uh, genome, and you know, by just by just sort of like copy and pasting the code, maybe making some slight tweaks, and and you know, then the hard part is you know administering it to the body, um, but uh, the, you know that that breakthrough has happened, and and we can sort of make, you know, m- you know trillions of of spike proteins, and you know our immune system can learn to attack them. And and you know sort of beat up beat him up as a you know use him as a punching bag to train for the real thing when the when the real infection happens and then our, our immune system is this will have applications beyond um, the coronavirus right yes yes so so any any anything you want to train your immune system to any protein you want to train your immune system to to flag or target you could could do this way and I think what's what's really interesting is you know particularly the cancer applications because what what we could do. Um, 
and what what these companies are, are you know their roadmap is in fact to do is to you know be able to sort of sequence uh, you know a, a healthy cell in your body and sequence a cancerous cell and sort of identify targets identify the you know the proteins that manifest that are um, that are different in the cancer cells and then train your immune system to attack the cancer and so people you know some of the some of the trials have been astounding there's been a lot of failures as well but um, but it seems that um, that, that this technology is is for real and it's it looks like it's going to happen. So that's so, so that's the part of the protein. I think there's there's other things going on around design, around sort of being able to predict protein folding and so on. And, and it's just it's just uh, you know it's just proteins are so fundamental to all of biology that that being able to understand how they work and being able to ultimately design new proteins that that. Uh, evolution neglected to, you know, to didn't provide us with because it just, there's no reason uh, from an evolutionary fitness perspective to give it to us. But, you know, if we want to live longer and so on, we could, we could have all these cleanup processes going on in our bodies, uh, you know, enabled by sort of artificially designed proteins um, that, you know, scientists are already starting to, to tinker with in the labs. So uh, beyond uh, the biological innovation in, in this area, which obviously is going to have enormous commercial potential, um, you, you talk about two other particular areas, right? So, so geothermal energy is a second. What's, uh, what's going on there? Yeah, it's, it's a, such a fascinating field. Um, so the, the thing to realize about geothermal energy is it could, in principle, provide all of the energy that we need. It's, you know, the amount of energy, heat energy in the earth is way more than, than the oil and gas reserves that, that exist. Um, and it's replenished constantly at, at, a, at a rate that's, you know, more, it's about twice uh, human uh, primary energy use. So, so it, there is enough in principle to power, you know, um, our civilization, you know, until the oceans boil, right? So, uh, so there's, there's plenty. Um, and so the what's what's needed is um, ways of uh, sort of exploring for and extracting heat energy that isn't immediately evident at the surface. So traditional geothermal energy has been done like near uh, volcanoes and fumaroles and, and geysers, um, where it's obvious that there's some heat. You know, you benefit from certain rock formations and so on, and and being able to go deeper to do it in more places and eventually everywhere and to engineer the subsurface so that, um, so that the kinds of, you know, so that you're expanding the, the amount of the number of locations where it's viable to the point where, you know, really just anywhere on the planet, you could drop a, a well and, you know, produce, uh, you know, clean electricity in a, in a, you know, again, this is like a very different from wind and solar that are intermittent. And that only um, that only operate, you know, in certain geographies and in you know certain times of day and unpredictable ways. That sometimes um, geothermal is twenty four seven base load energy, um, and it's you know it, it's able to uh, it could potentially be very very cheap. You know, uh, the startups coming out of the sort of the oil and gas sector and entering the geothermal space are talking about something like you know with today's technology. You know, four cents a kilowatt hour uh, in, with uh, future technology. You know, maybe two or three cents. And then when you amortize the cost of drilling, and you're done, you know, you've got the hole that lasts hundreds of years. Um, you know, you, the sort of the 
cost gets down to maybe like one cent per kilowatt hour. So it's really, um, you're going to be able to have very high quality energy at a very low price everywhere on the planet without carbon emissions, without other emissions, with a low footprint on the surface. It's just really the ideal form of energy. Um, and without the sort of the regulatory hassles that, that uh, you know, come, come with nuclear energy. So it's kind of, kind of like nuclear without the hassle. Uh, so, so this is generally safe, this kind of drilling? Oh yeah, it's it's uh, extremely safe. You know, it's you know you're you, in the sort of the there's different models of it, but uh, in sort of the ultimate instantiation of it, you're just going very very deep, and, um, and you know sort of in a vertical well, very very deep, and then either sort of connecting it the vertical shafts horizontally with you know sort of a network of horizontally drilled uh, pipe, or you could um, or you could create a fracture network underground to sort of create the surface area for the for the water to um or the the working fluid to receive the heat that is uh that are that is available down there it's interesting because we're not hearing as much about uh, geothermal power compared to say solar and wind as a kind of renewable energy source so that, that this is a very striking um, um, argument you're making in this essay um what about uh, the third uh, um, area of innovation you're, you're, you describe, uh, space exploration? Uh, you know, we, we hear about Elon Musk a lot, of course, and, and SpaceX. So what's, what's going on there and why um, is this something we should get excited about? Well, so Elon Musk, as we all know, is obsessed with going to Mars. And, and what um, I think a lot of people still don't really believe he's going to do it. And and the the program that he's the the rocket program that is under development right now in uh, Boca Chica, Texas, is is really uh, you know that's what it's targeting, and it's doing so in a way that is going to get um, it's going to radically open up access to to orbit and to the wider uh, solar system. So it, so the Starship vehicle. Um, that is, that's being tested now is, you know, designed to get launch costs, you know, down to almost nothing. I mean, it's it's um, on Falcon 9, the, the current workhorse vehicle that, you know, I think last quarter launched two, two thirds or more of the mass to orbit. Uh, you know, it's, it's about $2,600 a kilogram to get to low Earth orbit. And, you know, it, with uh, with Starship, I mean, there, there's a there's a, you know, a figure going around from Elon that, you know, they could get it down to $1.5 million a launch for 150 tons, which is $10 a kilogram. Yeah. So it's, it's more than 200 times uh, cheaper than, than what, what Falcon 9 is today. And now they may not hit that figure, at least not initially and so on, but, um, but, you know, order of magnitude changes in the cost of access to space um, are, are going to be a game changer. Uh, you're going to see start to see more um, more activity in orbit, including more complex activity, um, better, more use of things like uh, you know consumer grade hardware because you don't have to ha- you don't have to spend the billions of dollars on your on your satellite if um, if you know to replace it you know it doesn't doesn't really cost that much. So so there's all kinds of second order effects. And so payloads are going to, are going to, you know, the total mass to space is going to go up. The quality of the mass to space is going to go up. Um, and then, um, 
The other thing about Starship is it's being designed to refuel on orbit. So the access, uh, you know, it's o- dramatically opening up access to low Earth orbit, but the sort of like the proportional reduction in costs beyond low Earth orbit is even greater. Um, so normally when you send a payload to, you know, beyond low Earth orbit, um, on a rocket, you, you're able to do that by trading sort of the payload capacity for fuel. You, you have less payload uh, of mass and more fuel mass. And um, with by refueling on orbit, uh, you can send the full payload cap- capacity of the Starship to that final destination, whether that's Mars or, or somewhere else in the solar system. And so it's, it's gonna just basically, you know, radically reopen uh, at, you know, radically open access to to the wider solar system. Um, your your essay really adopts uh, the the kind of argument that Tyler Cowen has made that our culture has, in many ways, become too risk averse, um, and the you know the policy environment surrounding some of these innovations could impede their development. Um, you know, those who are sort of comfortable with current things would prefer to guard. Their, their current arrangements, um, you know, society on, on the view of this argument becomes unwilling to do what's necessary to push uh, the horizon of improvements forward. So, you know, as you write in your piece, stagnation is a choice. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and, and, you know, what the kind of regulatory environment could look like that would accelerate some of these developments, whether it's in biotech or energy or, or space exploration. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it's worth bringing back the, the connection to, you know, the, there's basically two theories about why we stagnated. And I think one is Robert Gordon. It's something implicit in the technology that we've, we've sort of ran out of room. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, low hanging fruit anymore. And then the other argument is, is, as you say, it's from Tyler Cowen. It's that we're, we become complacent. And, you know, I think that, the, you know, the fact that we have, that there is all this technological space to grow in that uh that my essay has talked about i think that that discounts the the robert gordon piece of it but then to to look at sort of the 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 bolstering the argument for complacency is you know the examples of things like um you know housing policy where it's like we know how to how to have uh more and better housing at lower cost and that's to build with higher density and we're we're not doing it um we know uh you know the with the, the pandemic is a perfect example of a, of a time, you know, where for a short period we were not complacent and we, we actually tried to, um, to move very quickly to commercialize these MRNA vaccines. And when we did it, it worked well. And so, um, so it's, it's interesting that during, during this time of where we've chosen, uh, briefly to be non-complacent, we have very fast innovation. So, what if we could do that all the time? You know, so that would mean something for biotech. It would mean something like the FDA, um, you know, being more um, more concerned about about too slow drug approval times, right? People dying from from drugs not being approved, as well as people dying dying from uh, from drugs that have been approved, you know, wrongly. So those 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 deaths should be equivalent in in their calculus, but they don't seem to be. Um, you know, I think uh, I think sort of just looking at the science in biotech around around aging 
and saying like, there's something really promising here. What would it take to, um, what would it take to accelerate that? And to do, um, if, if we were as concerned about that as we were about the coronavirus, you know, we could, we could avoid, uh, many millions of, of premature deaths by, uh, by sort of ex- extending lifespan and health span through that, um, through that research. Um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the reasons I've said that I'm interested in geothermals, because I think nuclear is overregulated, right? And the nuclear power in the U.S. is six times more expensive than South Korea. Um, the, even in geothermal, like I, I've identified this, this uh, bottleneck on, in terms of doing a well on, on federal lands, uh, which takes about a couple of years to approve. And for the same well, um, for, for oil and gas would, you know, get approved almost automatically. Um, you know, I, you mentioned that I worked in supersonics before. That's an area where clearly there's a regulatory element to our stagnation. We had the Concorde, it flew in 1969 and, um, we, you know, we don't have it today and we can't, you know, you can't buy a ticket on a supersonic, uh, uh, aircraft today. And that's entirely a regulatory uh, decision. Um, so, so there's a lot of, I think, evidence for the fact that we could move faster and we've chosen not to. And, and that sort of, you know, that's the, I think the other half of the case for saying why it's, it's not the low hanging fruit explanation for uh, slow total factor productivity growth. It's the complacency uh, explanation for uh, slow growth. And I guess, um, you know, if, if we expand that question to the kind of uh, political attitudes um, toward innovation, uh, you know, there, there are groups on both the right and the left who are suspicious of innovation. We've seen on the right, uh, the, you know, the, the right's been generally more supportive, I think, of free markets and obviously in, and uh, innovation over the years. But we do have a current within conservatism of, of a kind of neo-traditionalist conservatism. Um, and, you know, that, that's become increasingly prominent in recent years. And their argument is that the modern economy is leaving certain groups behind. Uh, you know, it's eroding uh, civic and religious bonds and that we need more, more government planning just by the right planners to, um, you know, help ameliorate that situation. And then you have on the left... Uh, groups like the degrowth movement, uh, which you, you know are looking to localism um, as as a kind of response to the future of uh, e- ecological disaster. Um, you know, what do you say to these different groups to make the case for innovation? You've you've been a very passionate advocate for this um, in your work. Uh, what you know, what do you say to the right and the left on this score? You know, I would say. Um that a, a lot of their issues really are not material, uh, not about material economic growth. They are about status and, and, and about, um, you know, making sure that, you know, certain values are respected, right? So on, maybe on the right, it's, it's people are concerned that, that, that traditional values and that, uh, you know, um, you know, rural America and that, um, that, you know, working class folks are, are respected and valued by our society. 
in in a way that they feel like sometimes they're not. And on the left, a lot of times it's like these these environmental values or these these equality values. Um, they 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 feel like they aren't being uh, they aren't being adequately respected. And so you know, I really see um, a, a lot of the material the the need for material growth that um, that. As kind of orthogonal to those questions about how do we raise the status of all people at the same time, right? Um, and so, it, so it, it certainly it affects the material growth to to be constantly fighting about those things and not being concerned uh, about about material economic growth. But um, but it's it's a it's a separate question. And if we just could 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 actually put the culture war on pause for a while and come together and think about how can we make our living standards higher uh, across the board like that would be the way to to move forward and to have a you know a better society well thanks very very much uh, eli um it's a fascinating essay uh wonderful discussion uh, don't forget to check out uh, eli dorado's work it's on the city journal website www.city-journal.org um We'll link to his author page in the description so you can find uh, his essay there. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Uh, and if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on YouTube. So thanks again very much, Eli, and uh, um, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Brian. It's been a real pleasure to work with you on this piece. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.